CityCast from Explicity. So this is from the very beginning of The Last Queen, but it takes place at a later moment in my heroine's life. It's in 1839, and it's in Lahore, in the Killa of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Jinda hasn't slept for two nights now, waiting by the sick bed of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, along with his other wives. They've recited the Guru Granth Sahib until their throats are raw. Birth and death are subject to the command of the Lord's will. He who believes in the name becomes victorious. They've given away their finest Kashmiri shawls, jewels, cows, horses, elephants, sacks of gold coins. Chinta doesn't own as much as the other queens. She came to her marriage empty-handed and has never cared to cajole gifts from her husband. But she too has gifted a triple-stranded gold necklace to the Jagannath temple, hoping for the recovery of the Sarkar, as his people lovingly call him. She kneels on the marble floor, grateful for the stone's coolness, and rests her head against the carved gold bedpost. As the Maharaja's youngest wife and his favorite, she's allowed certain liberties. The other women sit straight-spined, palms joined stiffly. Some of them send her cutting glances from under their veils. She doesn't care. It's stuffy in this room with too much whispering, too many people, Hindustani vides, European physicians, the senior courtiers, servants, priests, pankha pullers, and of course, the wives, covered from head to foot as custom dictates. Above her head, the canopy bears down a solid sheet of beaten gold. It oppresses her. Surely, it oppresses the Maharaja too. He'd prefer to lie on the roof, she knows, in sight of the stars, as was his pleasure on summer nights. He'd breathe better there in the open, with the city which he conquered and made his own stretching out beneath him. The intricate, beloved tapestry of Lahore, city of myth, fashioned from the wilderness before time began by love, son of Ram. But to whom can she say this? Who will listen to her? The power she possessed even a few days ago as the Sarkar's favorite queen has faded. Any experienced writer will tell you that the hardest thing to do is to write without trying to be clever. Some writers are simply born to coruscating prose. And then there are those who can entertain and hold the reader's attention without having to use words like coruscating. My guest today, Chitra Divakaruni, is such a writer. Reading Chitra is like traveling in a car with an excellent suspension. You don't feel the potholes. Or maybe that's because there are no potholes in her writing. Chitra's prose is not only honest and sincere and without artifice, but is also vivid at the same time. So vivid that filmmakers seem to be falling about making movies out of everything that she writes. 
The Mistress of Spices, starring Dylan McDermott and Aishwarya Rai, is only one famous example. Her stories have been turned into movies, TV shows, plays, even opera. To say that Chitra Divakarani's prose is romantic or evocative is to fall to spewing platitudes. Any writer, critic, or serious reader of books must understand that Chitra's consistently good writing comes from craft, not from a random muse. For that qualification, she's a professor teaching creative writing at Houston University in Texas. Chitra Divakarani's most recent book, The Last Queen, is a historical account of Rani Jindan, wife of then Maharaja of Punjab, Ranjit Singh, and mother of a future Maharaja, Dalip Singh. The book may be categorized as historical fiction, but the fiction is in the gaps of the story. The historical account itself is rich, and I'll say it, evocative. And now it is my pleasure to present one of the best-known writers from India, Chitra Divakaruni, welcome to the Literary City. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be speaking with you. The pleasure is all mine. Now, to plunge in, my first question, did you always want to tell stories? And when did you start? No, I. when I was growing up, I never thought I would be a writer. I never really wanted to be a writer. Uh, I wanted to be a uh, Fire engine driver. No. This is true. The dream career of small boys. Well, that was that was what my mother said and my aunts and my grandmother. They said, what are you talking about? But that was always my dream. So later then, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to, you know, fly a plane. Mm-hmm. If they're not going to let me drive the fire engine, I wanted to drive, you know, fly a plane. Well, that didn't happen either. Well, that's good for the literary world. And you didn't become a gonzo journalist either. I did not. I did not. So then I thought of my third career, which was actually acceptable to my family, which is I wanted to become a teacher. And of course, I am a teacher also, as well as being a writer. I teach writing now. Yes, you do. You know, third time it worked. And that is just as well. Now, in your account of what happened after the death of Maharaja Ranjit Singh, everyone who is otherwise eligible to the throne mysteriously dies, and Dalip Singh, the son of Rani Jindan, becomes the Maharaja, and she becomes the regent. Yes. Now, if this was an episode from Law and Order, she would be the prime suspect in a serial killing, wouldn't she? Yes. And if it, if I were just creating this story... Readers would say, what nonsense, something like this cannot happen. You're just, you're just, you know, you're bending the truth beyond our belief. But this is absolutely true, right? It's absolutely true that everyone dies, but she isn't even in the city. And in fact, she has no desire for her son to become the next king because she knows how difficult it is and how many challenges there are and how many enemies you make. But that's just what happens. It's an amazing time in history. So, although she was an ambitious woman, her ambitions were already fulfilled. They didn't extend to ruling the whole kingdom, right? Yes. I think what she really wanted, you know, she was very young. She came from a very humble background. Her father was the dog trainer in the castle. Um, But she falls in love with Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And even more amazingly, he falls in love with her. She is very beautiful, but... 
he marries her. He doesn't make her into a concubine, which would be more expected, but he marries her and he promises her that she will be his last queen. He'll never marry anyone else and he keeps that promise. So you see right away what an amazing personality she must have had in addition to the beauty, right? And But all she wants at that point is she is in love with him. She wants to be his queen. That's it. When she has her son, her ambitions are that her son should have a good, safe life. That's pretty much all she wants. So she doesn't have any desire or any designs on the throne. You write that she is the forgotten queen. Who forgot her and why? What can I say? Perhaps it's because the men, the historians have largely been men and they've just naturally focused on the men. In her case, there is another important element. She was hugely loved by her people and the British knew. In fact, there are letters that go back and forth between important British generals and the governor general and the resident and all of these people that say she is very dangerous. She is too intelligent you know, there will be surely an uprising around her. And so there's a smear campaign that the British put on saying that she is completely, you know, uh, she's just a terrible person. She's completely immoral. She's sleeping with everyone in the court. She's the Messalina, of, <laughs> you know, she's the Messalina of the Punjab. So I think that there was, now her people, the common people, they did not believe it. They continue to love her. And in fact, she is able to escape from a very high security prison, the Chunar Fort. Right. Because people help her, right? People come in, they pretend to be servants in that fort, and she manages to leave. But I think maybe perhaps later historians, when they're creating the history, they don't want to deal with that. We know this right from history to the modern day. The easiest way to deal with a strong woman is to slut shame her. I believe that's a phrase. Right? It's it's happened over and over. You are so right. Women, successful and strong women in history, have always been a quirk rather than merely capable rulers. In fact, it's really funny you said that because Dalhousie writes a letter. It's a very famous letter because it survived. And he's writing to... You know, the people in Punjab, he's writing to the resident and he's saying, you got to get rid of her. She is the only manly intelligence in all of Punjab. And <laughs> I had to laugh at that description. Well, even in recent history, Margaret Thatcher was described as the only man in the cabinet. You're right. And once when Indira Gandhi was asked how she should be addressed, she said, you can call me sir. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> How did you go about researching a book about a forgotten queen? The material was very challenging to find. And uh, the first part was there were, except for one leaflet, right, a, a very like slim volume, which was really for children, written for children. There's nothing, no other books on Maharani Jinnah. Hmm. So what I had to do is I had to widen my net, as it were, and look for everything on the history of Punjab at that time. And that there was a lot of. There were a lot of books on Maharaja Ranjit Singh. There were a lot of books on the First Anglo-Sikh War, the Second Anglo-Sikh War, and then later on Dalip Singh. And in these books, there would be paragraphs here and there. So I really had to 
you know, cull them from all these various sources. But luckily, there were very good uh, primary sources. Um, you know, when Maharani Jinda was imprisoned, her son was only about eight years old, Maharaja Dalip Singh. And he was put in charge of two British guardians, Lord and Lady Logan. And luckily for me, Lady Logan loved writing in her diary. And I managed to get hold of a copy of her diary. <laughs> so, in which it was wonderful because in which I could get like completely uncensored, like what the British were thinking at that time, what was being done, what was being done for Dalip or to Dalip, how he was taken to England, what they thought about Maharani Jinda. And finally, even after many years and much plotting on the part of her son, they're reunited. We get Lady Logan's uh, great descriptions of Maharani Jinda in London. Of course, she's being observed from and described from a very unfriendly gaze, but I could read through that and figure out what was going on and how much courage it took for Maharani Jinda and how much love for her son, for her to come and live in the country of the hated British who had done her and her husband, his whole kingdom, such wrong, and her son, most of all. So so I was lucky to get those uh, primary sources. Now, Maharani Jinda was also a big letter writer. So when she is in prison, nobody's listening to her. She continues writing letters. She writes to the governor general. She writes to Queen Victoria. She writes to the resident, enumerating all the wrongs that they're doing to her, including not giving her the money that she was promised, right? She's promised a certain amount of money when, uh, when Punjab becomes a protectorate. She never gets it. It's reduced and reduced and reduced and finally just taken away. Anyway, so the British don't pay any attention to these letters, but because she has these great uh, retainers who love her, she gets these out to the Punjab, Punjabi papers and they publish them. And so there are records of these. And were the archives well-preserved? They're well-preserved. They're well-preserved. And I was helped by... Uh, you know, Kushwant Singh's books in which he mentions those, so then I could go looking for them. So that was very helpful to me. Did Kushwant Singh mention Rani Jindan? You know, he mentions the Maharani in places, mm -hmm. and there are key sentences. Right. So I had to look at those key sentences and then put them together. I guess, but I suspect that you found these because you were specifically looking for mentions of Rani Jindan. Otherwise, blink and it's gone. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I literally went through every page looking for anything on Maharani Chinda. And I dare say that researching the second part of the book, the, the bits in England, must have been much easier because records are maintained over there, aren't they? Yeah. In uh, India, yeah. it's, it's almost like once history it's over, it's over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have rules on how you might incorporate fiction into a historical narrative? What are the rules? Yeah. The short answer is, if history spoke of it, then I listen. And where history is silent, then I feel I have the right to speak. We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? 
Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. One of the key descriptions in this book is under what circumstances Dalip Singh gifted the Kohinoor diamond to Queen Victoria. Your point is that it wouldn't have been of his own volition because he was feeling a sense of gratitude towards the British. Now, in later years, this came to be known as the Stockholm Syndrome. Absolutely. Now, you had a helpline for domestic uh, abuse, women, people in trouble. There's two of them. Right. Then wouldn't you be sensitive to the possibility that for all the descriptions of the kings and their glory and their kingdoms, their glory was predicated on the misery of their subjects, their servants, their slaves? As I researched Maharani Jinda, obviously I had to research and I wanted to research Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And one of the things I have to say about Maharaja Ranjit Singh, he was a truly enlightened leader. His people loved him so much. And he was very generous to his servants, to his followers. Again, just as we say that Dalip Singh may have been in a Stockholm Syndrome situation, being grateful towards his captors and meekly handing over the Kohinoor diamond to Queen Victoria, so might have been all of these beloved subjects of the kings who, um, you know, they couldn't well leave their jobs and take their resume somewhere else. I mean, sort of stuck in a catch-22 situation. What about Stockholm Syndrome for them? That's, you have, there is some truth to that. But the common people, they can see, so there were some, you know, big uprisings in the Punjab that were headed by the commoners, who really, I mean, there was no one telling them to do this. Maharani Jinda is imprisoned by that time. Well, yes, to the extent that revolutions don't happen via the Stockholm Syndrome. You mentioned the common people. I want to point out that your geospecific patwa is very good. It's not just a matter of, uh, say, in Last Queen, of using Punjabi phrases or terms of endearment. What I'm trying to say is that your Punjabi accent was good. Thank you so much. I did a lot of research. I, I, I truly hounded my Punjabi friends as well. Many of them were like, we don't want to talk to you anymore. But I have to also thank uh, my publisher, HarperCollins, because they gave me a Punjabi kind of a fact checker who was a cultural fact checker for me. And so I did all the research I could, but then I had someone check everything for me. So, and I'm glad that it worked for you. <laughs> Thank you. I don't speak any Punjabi at all, but uh, earlier when you said that you used the fiction part, which was to portray the emotions of your characters, if the historical account didn't adequately capture it. Now, that's what I mean. In order to be able to connect the emotions to the narrative, you needed to do that with the right accent. And I think that was remarkable. Thank you. Now, in your other book, One Amazing Thing, you rock a whole slew of ethnic specificities. So how do you do it? Do you live inside their minds? What, what, what tools do you adopt? Well, first of all, thank you so much. And yes, 
I I do, you know, for me, it's very, I have to hear voices. I kind of have to hear the voice. The voice is extremely important to me. It's a big part of writing. In fact, I can't write until I get the voice of the person right. But so I'll tell you a little funny story. And this is when I was writing an early novel, Sister of My Heart, yes. which has two uh, narrators and they're two cousins, but they're very different in character. So they're each narrating their chapters in first person, mm-hmm. but uh, the voices have to be very different. They have to really bring out the character. I, I was having lots of difficulties. So I would walk up and down and I would try to speak their chapters before I wrote them so that I could get, you know, I don't know, the cadence. I could get the cadence. Mm -hmm. And so my boys, my children were little at that time. So the older one is like five years old and the little one is like three years old. And I hear the little one asking the older one with some concern, what is mommy doing? (laughs) And I still remember what my older one she it said. He said, "Don't worry, she's just practicing to be a writer." <laughs> and I thought, "How true! How true!" One of the things that I mentioned in the monologue was how you write without artifice and so simply. How do you do it? I, I'm happy that you said that, and I'm really appreciative that you said that. And I think what has really helped me is early on I recognized something, which is. What's important is the story, not me. I'm just the the conduit through which the book has to come, and it has to be a clear conduit. Right. To quote you, there was an unexpected freedom in finding out that one wasn't as important as one had always assumed. Exactly. And in fact, that has certainly helped me to become a better writer than I would have been otherwise. because. You know, another great writer has said, Orwell has said, I don't know, make yourself transparent. You need to make your language transparent. So what you want to express through that language comes through without anything obscuring it. Allow me to quote you again. Everyone breathes in air, but it is a wise person who knows when to use that air to speak and when to exhale in silence. Lovely lines. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, there's got to be a reason why your books end up as movies, as TV shows and plays and operas. Do you think of the visual medium when you write? Very much so. So before I became a writer, I was a visual artist. I was a painter. And for a while, I was doing both. Is that so? So for a while, I was doing both. But at a certain point, I felt I had to do one or the other. Otherwise, I would just be a dilettante. I would never be good enough. Right. But I think that painter's eye went into my writing so that the visual aspect of the writing is very important to me. In some ways, I have to see things as I'm writing them. I'm very aware of color and texture and things of that kind. And that explains quite a bit. Now, the writing tone in The Last Queen was substantively different from the writing tone in One Amazing Thing. One book was set in Punjab, the other was set in uh, America. So are you cognizant of being respectful to the local tone when you write? 
Yeah, I think you're very accurate in pointing that out. And I think that's actually true of all my books, because each one of them inhabits a particular world. And therefore, each one of them has to be expressed in a way that is appropriate for that world. And so I think, you know, I have to find that voice, that, I don't know, that descriptive tone. Speaking of local tone, in the book, One Amazing Thing, you have a scene early on, uh, just after the earthquake and people are trapped. And there is a character subduing a younger man with a karate blow. This sentence, he, the boy, came at Cameron, propelled by compressed fear. Lovely line, by the way. Thank you. And then the blow to the base of the skull that needed skill not to be fatal. Now, this is what one learns in martial arts. Clearly, you did your research. And visually, it reads like uh, someone scripted this for a James Bond fight scene. Now, in addition to being a fire engine driver, did you also want to be a Bond girl? <laughs> I did take karate lessons in college. I, I, was, knew it. I got quite high up there. Really? <laughs> yeah. I should have guessed. Yeah. I took karate. My boys are both black belts in karate. So You didn't use the word karate in your book. I did. <laughs> no, and I'm delighted that you could see that in that scene, that you caught that. Wait a minute. Not so fast. Now, after subduing the guy, Cameron apologizes to the room and says he didn't mean it. Couldn't you have just let him remain badass? <laughs> well, that's not who he is. And so I had to be true to who he was. <laughs> <laughs> if you say so. Now, another character in your book carries a copy of Canterbury Tales in her bag. Now, was there something allegorical about that choice of book? It could have been any book. And, you know, it's appropriate because she's studying literature and she's taking a, a medieval class. But it's also, it, it's also a little... What shall I say? It, it fits the structure because just like in the Canterbury Tales, each character will be telling their own story as the novel goes along. So, you know, I, I wanted to give a little nod to Chaucer. Now from Chaucer to an Elizabethan time, your thesis was on Marlowe, wasn't it? Christopher Marlowe. Oh, you have done a lot of research. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not as much as you did for Last Queen. <laughs> What drew you to Marlowe? Oh, when I was an undergraduate, I read Dr. Faustus, and that was it. I was in love. <laughs> I totally get it. Christopher Marlowe influenced Shakespeare a great deal. In fact, Shakespeare uh, quotes him in, uh, in, what is that, As You Like It? Or in, is it in two plays or in two places in one play? I can't remember. No, Shakespeare was greatly influenced by Christopher Marlowe. In fact, you know, Marlowe dies very young. He's, it's a very tragic death. He just dies in a knife fight. And many critics say, and I agree with them, that had he lived, you know, he would have rivaled Shakespeare because he wrote everything he wrote in a very short period of time when he was very young. So who knows what he would have matured into. And Francis Bacon would have taken credit for that too. <laughs> Has writing books ruined you for the shorter version of literature, like short stories and articles and so on? You know, I have to say I love the novel form. That large tapestry 
it's just so exciting. It's just so exciting to carry a story through time, to follow characters through generations. There's just something amazing in that. So I love the short story. Every once in a while, I go back to it. So one of my relatively recent books is uh, Before We Visit the Goddess, which is all right, I wanted both. I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it. So it's a novel in stories. You are a teacher. You teach creative writing. What is the greatest tool for an aspiring writer? Okay, there's two things that they should have. One of them, uh, you can't do too much about. One of them is, you know, the genius that you're born with. You, you really have to have a writer's eye. If you don't have it, I mean, you can be taught up to a certain level, but you you won't get beyond it. That part, no one can teach you. And I say that clearly to all my students. You know, I'm, I'm like, I, I teach, I'm blessed to teach in a very competitive writing program. It's internationally renowned. So we get extremely good writers. And I say to them, you've already come with that. That's why you're here. You have that, the writer's eye, you have that skill, you have that, that, you know, that genius. But what I will teach you is how to shape that genius. And that's the part where people need to work. They need to work on, you know, they have to have the discipline. They have to do the reading. They have to learn from other writers. They have to understand the voice of their character. They have to understand why third person is good in this novel and why first person is necessary in this novel, etc., etc. So those are the skills that have to be learned. And you must have language. You do. You have to have your grammar, the vocabulary, things will go into you. And now, Chitra, for the burning question of all time. Printed books or Kindle? <laughs> well, for me, for me now, it's all Kindle. But it's Kindle with a notebook. Kindle with a notebook. I have my writer's notebook. I have like, you know, you should see all of my my papers. I'm always like making notes. I'm on Kindle, but I'm making notes. Yes, I like Kindle because it's just earth friendly, you know. That it is. And I've run out of space on my shelves. I've run out of space. And I have run out of time. Chitra, it was wonderful talking to you. Very enjoyable. Thank you. I enjoyed our I enjoyed our conversation. You had great questions. That is very kind of you to say. Chitra Divakaruni, thank you so much for being my guest today on The Literary City. Thank you so much. It was absolutely my pleasure. And that was the delightful Chitra Banerjee Divakaruni. And I'll be back with that fun segment, What's That Word? And I'm back with What's That Word? where we look at words and phrases that we use all the time but never stop to think about. And to help me with it is my co-host. And she does a rather scatological job of introducing herself, so <laughs> I will let her. Hello, my name is Praniti, but you can call me P. That's P with an A, not another E. Hello, P with an A. Are you having fun today? <laughs> yeah. And I had a great time listening to the interview with Chitra Divakaruni. Anything stand out for you? That part about historians not giving women their place in history. Yeah, it's true. You know, they, uh, women have been treated as curiosity. Even even the badass ones like Jean d'Arc or Rani of Jhansi, 
I, but you do know that quote from uh, Khalid Husseini. You know Husseini? Uh, I know Husseini, of course. He's that popular writer. But mm-hmm. uh, what quote is this? Uh, this quote is from his book, A Thousand Splendid Sons. And it goes something like this. Like a compass needle that points north, a man's accusing finger always finds a woman. Wow. Is he already married? <laughs> You find out, ask him his marital status. And while you're at it, invite him to the show. (laughs) Sure, I will. And I laughed at that part about Indira Gandhi telling someone to call her Sir. (laughs) Is that real? Yes, it is. I got it from someone who heard it firsthand or heard it manually, as they say in Delhi. Heard it manually. That's charming. (laughs) I was told that Mrs. Gandhi got irritated when some confused guy asked her how he should address her, Madam Mrs. Prime Minister. She looked at him and snapped, You can call me sir. (laughs) There used to be much banter and snarky humor in politics, wasn't there? Well, yes, there totally was, because I, I think that there used to be intelligent people in politics too. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I was I was breastfed on sarcasm and wit. Good times. <laughs> okay, P with an A, what's that word? A phrase today. Ah. In your interview, you said catch 22. Right. Good catch. <laughs> well, loosely we know catch 22 means being stuck in a sort of predicament of choice, right? Sort of. <laughs> I believe I do use the phrase correctly, but I couldn't explain it to someone. Um, So dish on the meaning and etymology, please. Well, your meaning is correct. And by the way, I like your phrase, predicament of choice. (laughs) Thanks. Okay, a catch-22 is what is known as an unsolvable logical dilemma. And it is a predicament, one of being caught between conflicting or contradictory rules. Uh, Give me an example. This one. You can only get a job when you have experience, but you cannot get experience unless you have a job. Oh, man. We've all been there. And the origin of the phrase is Joseph Heller's book. What's the story there? Yes, you're right. In uh, 1961, Joseph Heller's novel, Catch-22, was a great hit. You know, the story was about a pilot named Orr, O-R-R, who wanted to get out of flying bombers in dangerous combat missions. So Orr hit upon this grand plan. He said that only someone insane would actually put himself in danger flying combat missions. So he reasoned he should be prevented from flying combat missions because he claimed he was clearly insane. (laughs) Neat. Did he succeed? No. The (laughs) attending psychiatrist told him that there was a catch. And, uh, well, actually, I have the book here. I'll read from it. Right. Okay, here goes. Or, you mean there's a catch? Sure, there's a catch, Doc Danica replied. Catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat duty isn't crazy. (laughs) So, Or was crazy for repeatedly putting himself in danger. Yes, 
and he only needed to say so and ask for mental evaluation to be declared unfit for the job. But when he asks for his mental evaluation, he's considered sane for wanting to get out of danger and is therefore fit for the job. That is correct. <laughs> WTF, man. <laughs> so he can never win. And such is the predicament of Catch-22. And why the number 22? I found something on that from Wikipedia. Interesting stuff. Dish. Okay, the opening chapter of the book was first published as an article in, uh, in 1955 in New World Writing titled Catch-18. But mm. when it became time to release the book, they didn't want it confused with Leon Uris's book, Mila 18. Mm. And then they thought, hey, what about Catch 11? But then at the time, the movie Ocean's 11 had just been released. Right. And then Catch 17 didn't work because of the World War II movie, Stalag 17. And some wise, wise one came up with Catch 14, but that got rejected by the publisher. The publisher said, it simply wasn't a funny number. So, <laughs> Catch 22. <laughs> that is so interesting. And yes, 22 is a funny number. Hey, my birthday is on a 22. Really? Which month? This month. What? That's today. <laughs> Say it then. Happy. Happy birthday to you. Oh, thank you for remembering. <laughs> well, I'm not in any Catch-22 situation today, but the day is still young. And I'm not going to agree to fly any bomber missions. I ain't insane. But P with an A, they would have to be insane to ask you to fly combat missions. <laughs> And that is our show. It is also the end of season one of The Literary City. 26 episodes, such wonderful guests, such wonderful fun. And we're going to be back next week with a whole slew of new and interesting stuff. So here's what you do. Just go hit the subscribe button on wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and you'll get an alert. Thank you for being here. See you again next Wednesday.